sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, A little bit, uh, maybe a, a little less rested than I would like to be. I was, I was the, uh, the, the victim of an early morning coordinated lick attack by my dogs, Gus and Ernie. Uh, they, when, when my wife is out of town, they get to sleep on the bed. And so they decided it was time to get up. And I was, I was forced to, you know, uh, comply basically with their, with their uh, lick related demands. And so, uh, but I'm here and I'm good. So anyway, and I don't, I don't blame them anyway. So, 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 very, but, yeah, yeah, very accurate. I get woken up every morning by my three elderly dogs. There you can see, so you know the what same, I'm talking about. The same about. method. Yep. Yeah. It works though. Oh, definitely. It's a great alarm clock for sure. <laughs> so, anyway, before I get started with our show today, we want to thank our newest uh, supporter uh, on Patreon. That's Wade. Wade, thank you so much for becoming a monthly sustaining supporter. And of course, when Wade or anyone becomes a supporter of the show on Patreon, you get more than just this thanks at the end of the show. All supporters at any level get access to our weekly bonus show. And there are also a bunch of other things we put together, supporters at various levels. This past week, I've spent some time sending out the latest round of mugs and tote bags to folks. So that, that's always a lot of fun to do. And to check out all that stuff, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can just go to our show page, politicsguys.com, and click on the support link. There. All right, with that out of the way, Kristen, uh, I will turn things over to you. Okay, so the first story that we're going to talk about is, uh, I mean, unless you've been living under a rock, you've heard all about this, and it's something that's been going on for a while. Um, And this is the uh, everything going on with Jeffrey Epstein and, of course, now with uh, Alex Acosta. So I'll give you a little uh, a little tease, I guess. Uh, Wealthy hedge fund manager and financier uh, Jeffrey Epstein, who is no stranger to serious legal troubles, was arrested on new sex trafficking charges, uh, this time in New York. These charges are just the latest for Epstein, who has faced the same charges in Florida over the years. Some of the young women that he allegedly assaulted were as young as 14. Ugh. Uh, yeah. Epstein, of course, has been in the limelight more than usual because of his friendships with powerful people, including former President Bill Clinton and President Donald Trump. And of, I should note that both of these politicos have denied knowledge of Epstein's crimes prior to their public exposure. And Trump went so far as to say he'd actually given Epstein the boot from his private club here in South Florida years ago. And sort of a an add on to that, um, and this kind of all happened yesterday, Labor Secretary Alex Acosta factors into all of this because he is a former federal prosecutor here in South Florida. And he oversaw a 2008 deal in which Epstein uh, pleaded guilty to lesser sex crimes and served just 13 months in county jail with work release during the day. And he resigned from this post uh, from his post, sorry, this past Friday. So this would have been yesterday. Um, So, Mike, I mean, let's talk about this. I'm going to guess that you think what Epstein allegedly did was atrocious, as I did. But, you know, Acosta's resignation, a necessary, a victory. What do you think? Well, I think. I guess there are three main things, I think, Kristen. Um, mm-hmm. And the first is the easiest one is, yeah, these these allegations, which, you know, there sh- certainly seems to be a lot behind them. And especially given his history and the fact that he served time, uh, I, I assume that there's a lot to them. And, and these things did happen. And that is 
atrocious and awful, obviously. Yeah. So that's the easy part. Then the two other parts to me are, n- number one, the uh, uh, sort of the fact that, well, he got off seemingly so easy leads me to kind of two other things. Number one, it kind of reminds me, I don't know if you remember this, a while back, this was uh, earlier, earlier this year, I think, that mm-hmm. the Patriots owner, Bob Kraft, was... Uh, caught up in a prostitution sting, oh, yeah. kind of this strip mall prostitute, not even like high class sort of thousand dollar a night prostitution, but sort of, you know, I think it, uh, just sort of garden variety, anyone sort of prostitutes. Uh, he got caught up. He got off on this. And to me, this is a similar thing, though. Of course, what, Op- what Epstein did is, is just so much, so much, so much worse. But to me, the rich, it's just more, more example that the rich live in a different world than we do. And, mm-hmm. and, and part of living in that different world means that they have their own legal system. The, the, the rules that would apply to you or me or anyone if we got caught up in something horrible like this or just a normal kind of thing don't really apply so much to these folks. Um, you know, I mean, the fact that apparently... Epstein's attorneys were aggressively investigating the prosecutors and mm-hmm. the families of the alleged victims. And we're putting a lot of, I mean, that's, you know, he has rich people have the sort of resources to do those things, to put that sort of countervailing pressure on that most people don't. And that I think makes a difference. So that, that I think is a huge problem. And that of course, doesn't even bring in the issue of whether or not Acosta did anything wrong, which, which it seems to me like he may have certainly, but I was wondering what you thought about that, that first, that, that first kind of comment of mine. Um, you mean the, well, not the comment that what he did was horrible and yeah, not atrocious. That. No, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cause but, I totally agree. But I mean, the um, kind of different legal system sort that, of thing. Yeah, I do. I do agree with you. I think that, um, in a lot of situations, money, um, tends to make things go away. And the thought, the thought of something this depraved, I mean, such depraved allegations, making something like that go away. And I, I, you know, I think you could argue that they didn't completely go away, but his sentence d- didn't even scratch the surface yeah. of what it needed to, in my you know, humble opinion. If, if, if this is all true and this really happened, which I, I personally believe that it did. Um, I mean, the, the guy should have been put in jail and thrown, you know, the key yeah. should have been thrown away. And, um, the fact that he was out and that he was even allowed to, to be released for work during the day, 13 months in a county jail. I mean, I'm actually originally from Palm Beach County. And I remember, here. of course, I did not run in the same circles as somebody like Jeffrey <laughs> yeah. Epstein. But I, you know, I remember hearing about him and I remember all this happening in 2008. And I remember... I remember the Bob Kraft thing, which was a very different circumstance, but, you know, it's sort of similar idea of this fact that if you have money, you can make things go away. And I think it speaks a lot to the justice system in general and sort of the socioeconomic disparity going on in this country. Um, And and I find that very alarming. And and I'm and I'm always it's funny because I'm always a little happy and, and a little relieved when I see a story like this come out and get such negative attention because it makes me think, oh, good, you know, maybe I haven't lost faith in the system 
on either side, whether, you know, it's, it's, you know, whenever, and especially when it's somebody political, you know, if there, if there's some truth to it, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm glad it's getting attention, but it always inevitably devolves into some political debate and it's, it becomes this partisan thing and it, and it just kind of goes away because I think people get sick of hearing about it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. And, and I think it's frustrating because sometimes you see a problem and there's not a really obvious, clear policy solution to it. And here, I mean, the fact that it's better to be rich and like you said, money makes a lot of problems going away. That's, that's been as true as long as there have been people with money. Um, and, and, I don't know that there's, I can't think of any way to make that go away, you know? And so it's just very deeply frustrating to me that, that, that horrific human beings like Jeffrey Epstein can get away with this egregious con- uh, you know, conduct simply because they have so much money. It just makes me just want to throw up, really. Yeah. And it, and it's, um, you know, I was just re- and I had forgotten about this. I remembered hearing about it. And I, I was reminded this morning that he actually was allegedly trying to pay off some of these uh, victims and witnesses, yeah. things like that. Um, I think towards the end of last year, when the allegations started to resurface of things that were going on in, in Florida, um, he had tried to pay these people off. And again, it's just another testament to the fact that um, you know, the rich, some of the, I'm not going to say all the rich, but, you know, there are people out there, bad people who are rich and there are bad people who are poor, but the rich ones seem to have it a little easier because the, their money makes things go away. And if he was able to pay witnesses and victims off, I mean, you know, this, I don't know, this is just, this is not by far yeah. from a victim, something far from a victimless crime. Yeah. Yeah, for I, sure. I just, you know, I think um, we have a, a somebody in the state legislature here, um, legislature here, Lauren Book. Um, she's I, she's a, a Democrat here in Florida, um, but I, I really admire her a lot. She um, she's a big advocate for um, sex against sex crimes um, against children. And she's come out and said, called this a victory when Alex Acosta resigned. And I I think I I think I would have to agree that I, I'm yeah. glad that this finally happened. I don't necessarily see it as a victory. I don't know that that anything's really a victory. No, here. no. Yeah. Um, but, you yeah. know, on, on the Acosta part of it, I think is. His explanation, you know, well, we we wouldn't have necessarily won and we wanted to make sure he got some jail time. That seems to me to be pretty, pretty weak stuff. Actually, I think my sense, again, and it's true that we don't have nearly the information, but my sense is that there was a ton of political pressure put on. And between that and the aggressive investigations and knowing the people they were going up against, they just said, you know what, let's just take what we can get, we'll call it a victory and move on because mm-hmm. we just don't want the hassle of dealing with this guy who's going to make our lives miserable. That, that's, my, that's my sense, my, the, the feel that I get from this, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's funny because as I'm, I'm married to a defense attorney um, who, you know, has a, a firm here in Florida. And I'm sure right now he's probably listening to this going, oh, but, you know, to say to say I know that he I know that he I mean, he thinks Jeffrey Epstein's disgusting, too, for the record. Um, But he is entitled to this legal process. And, you know, I I think obviously what happened with getting 13 months in jail, I think it's just a horrible miscarriage of justice. And while I understand why Acosta, like you said, I understand that probably what was the rationale, the likely rationale, I'll say, behind that little sweetheart deal, it just. Yeah, oh, it just it turns my stomach. Yeah. And, and, you know, the one thing that I could say that he, he made a reasonable point about, but I think overall his case is ridiculous, is you know, he said that 
uh, at one point that, well, the, the climate today is differently. And certainly, I would say mm-hmm. that in the wake of the, the Me Too movement, which I think has been a, just a, a great thing, is that, yeah, women are more comfortable coming out, but that doesn't fit into the narrative that he's trying to, to paint because it seems that, that, that much of this evidence was already available prior. So I don't think that fits with his story, but he does make, a, I think, a reasonable point saying that it maybe is slightly easier to prosecute some of these cases today than it was in the past. And I see that as a good thing, but I don't think that applies to this particular case. I think they just took the easy way out, basically. Yeah, I I do, too. And I mean, when I think back to 2008 and what the climate was, I mean, I think it was it was pretty partisan, too. I I think big changes started to come around 2004. You started to see kind of another step in that partisan direction. But I mean, I do understand that obviously the climate is different, but, um, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot more attention on it. This may not have made headlines the same way it, it you know, if, if back in 2008 as it did, or even to, you know, 2015 or 14, I don't know yeah. that it would have made the same headlines. So, I mean, for better or for worse, the Me Too movement, I have my issues with it, but, you know, it, it did, it did bring, th- shed some light on, on people disgusting. I don't even want to call him a person, you know, disgusting people like, like Jeffrey yeah. Epstein and, you know, people like that. So and, and uh, he, for better he, or for worse. Yeah. You know, I want to point out, too, that this isn't necessarily just a case of uh, horrible, I would argue, horrible judgment on the part of Acosta. This might actually be professional misconduct. We don't know for sure. The Justice Department is actually investigating whether or not there was any professional misconduct. And, of course, I'm not going to comment on that until I see the results of their investigation. But this isn't necessarily just, well... He had a judgment call to make, and he erred on the side of making his life a little easier. It could go, you know, considerably further than that. And so, uh, again, it's difficult. It seems to me that this is pretty clear what happened here. But I also, you know, there's this tendency, of course, to prejudge before all the evidence is out. And I always try to bend over backwards to err on the side of not doing that. But in this case, it sure seems like I have a pretty good sense of what I think went on here. Yeah. And I, and, and again, I, I would stop short of calling this a victory. You know, I understand why they're using that, that terminology and especially in this political climate. Um, but you know, I just, oh, I just don't know who this would be a victory for, even I, if yeah, he's put in yeah. jail forever, you know, put him thrown in prison forever. I, I, I guess, well, I guess Kristen, in the sense, in the sense that there are more, there are more than just, you know, it's more than just Jeffrey Epstein. And if oh, yeah. you are a, uh, you are a, a, a young woman or a young man or anyone of any age who's been abused by someone who is rich and powerful. Maybe you see this and say, well, hey, if billionaire friend of presidents can go down, maybe I have a chance going up against the, the, the sleazeball, mm-hmm. the, the horrible person who did this to me. And if so, if that, if that makes it easier for one more person to speak out, and get some justice, then yeah, maybe in that sense, it is a victory. Yeah, I, I've heard of it um, expressed multiple times as sort of like the first of, of several dominoes. I mean, I don't know that it's the first domino because you know, we've yeah, over the last yeah. few years, we've seen a lot of these dominoes fall. But I mean, I guess my hope is that, you know, if there are really t- these terrible things going on to, at this level, and I suspect that there are, um, or things that have gone on, I would hope that 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 this would be, you know, one do- one more door opening yeah. for things like that being brought to light. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, um, should we move on to the next topic? Yeah, let's. Yeah, we have a lot of topics. Um, okay, so the next topic is we're going to go past the borders of the United States. Um, the number of migrants arrested by Border Patrol at the U.S.-Mexico border fell 29% in June. Uh, this is seen by many as promising, as it could mean that tensions subside a bit for now. Uh, this migrant surge, which dominated the news cycle earlier this year, depleted American resources and caused months of strife and resentment in Washington on both sides. Border Patrol personnel, and this is just uh, some facts and figures in case you didn't uh, read about it. Border Patrol personnel arrested about 95,000 migrants in June, um, and that is down from 133,000 in May, uh, which that number really shocked me, which yeah. was the highest monthly total in over 13 years. While there does tend to be a slight drop off in border arrests during the summer months due to the blazing sun and the brutally hot weather in that border region, uh, many officials surmised that such a steep decline would be the result of Mexico's ramped up security efforts, which is part of the deal brokered between the U.S. and Mexico last month. And uh, the debate is, of course, still raging and uh, passions are quite inflamed and emotions, too, on both sides. But this could be a jumping off point for further discussions. I think that was uh, what a lot of people think. So what, what do you think, Mike? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I see this I, I see this as a potentially positive thing. Of course, it'll be a few months before we know if sort of the the trend in crossings has has uh, broken or whether this is a blip or what have you. But it seems that way. And from from what I understand, uh, word has gotten out even into Central America that uh, it's becoming a lot harder to cross through Mexico. Mexican authorities say that they've decreased deportations 33% since this deal with, uh, you know, in, in exchange for President Trump not uh, putting in place tariffs. So I, I guess I'm, I'm a little conflicted. Mm -hmm. and, and here's why. I, I feel that I wish that, I think that we can certainly absorb a lot more immigrants than we currently have in our country. Um, but I also think that the asylum system as it's put together is a total wreck. And so we can absorb more people into the country, but we don't have the infrastructure, whether legally or physically at the border to handle what's going on now, which mm -hmm. means that people end up being in awful situations. And we, I mean, we've certainly heard the stories over recent weeks and months and so forth. And so I'd like to think, well, in a better world, better political world than ours, perhaps, this would be a pause that would give us an opportunity to build up our infrastructure, more immigration judges, better facilities, that sort of thing, some changes to our asylum laws to rationalize them, to change our immigration system so that we could let in more people who who just just want to work hard and contribute to the American, you know, economy and system in general. Um, that's not going to happen, unfortunately, because we don't live in a better political world. But uh, so that's why I'm conflicted, I guess, on this. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, I too, um, 
you know, as somebody who has dealt with a lot of data and I, I'm sure a lot of people listening have, you know, they, they look at these numbers coming out and they don't trust them. And I think that's smart to be skeptical because um, I think I read somewhere, I jotted this down. I, I read somewhere that Mexican officials are claiming that they intercepted 15 sort of these large caravans, you know, the migrants travel across mm-hmm. the border in caravans yeah, and safe, of yeah. hundred plus people. And they're saying that they intercepted 15 of these groups before they reach the border even. So, I mean, I think that that's a step in a positive direction because a lot of those people end up getting caught. You know, their their fate once they do cross the border um, or in preparation across the border is sometimes worse. You know, I, I yeah. think there's that, you know, they're dealing with a lot, they're taking on a lot of risk and a lot of these people die or get seriously injured trying to do it. But I think that we need to be skeptical of these numbers, like you said, because, you know, when I read that there's usually a drop off in the summer, I thought, well, duh, you know, <laughs> we it, it's going to take a couple months before we get, you know, real results. And if there's a pattern, you know, maybe I think that's a jumping off point for discussing whether or not this, this deal brokered is actually working. And of course this deal sunsets. So, you know, we're, we're on a bit of a timeline, but, um, you know, I, I think it's, I like like you said, I, I agree with you. I think that the system for asylum needs to change. I don't think we should. I've heard a lot of people say we need to stop immigrants from coming across the border. Well, I, you know, I don't think that's feasible and I don't think it's right to just tell people that they can't come in. Um, but I think there needs to be a better system where we keep track of people coming across and, you know, we are able to do some vetting. And I think if I think any situation where there's this humanitarian effort, and I, I hope that there is some you know, some, I guess, semblance of humanitarianism behind it, sort of getting the message across to people from these, you know, who are struggling in these other countries, um, that it would, that it's a dangerous proposition across the border. I hope that that's, that that message is what's stopping them from coming and making that risk and maybe forcing them to consider the legal alternative. Um, I just think we need to make that legal alternative so much easier. Yeah. Well, and that's why I'm, why I'm conflicted because I, I actually want, more people to come, you know, so, but, but I want, I want the system to be able to handle the people who are coming and that's sort of the the difficulty for me. You know, another thing I wanted to point out though, is another part of this is the expansion of that remain in Mexico program where, and that, that's just to refresh people's uh, memories on that, that at first a federal judge blocked it, but then a higher court removed the block while it's going through the courts. I, 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 wonder about the or not the constitutionality the legality of it but right now that allows a lot of people who are waiting for their asylum hearing to stay in mexico in some pretty unsafe conditions in many instances which is why i'm not crazy about it but that that's another part of it as well um and finally you know and this is to me the kind of macro point is one thing i know is that we're not going to get any kind of a large comprehensive deal on this until at the very earliest January of 2021. And that's mm-hmm. if everything goes, as far as I'm concerned, right. And for me, of course, right would mean, you know, uh, uh, President Buttigieg works with the Democratic Congress <laughs> and uh, figures out a deal. But, but, but the point being is that's the earliest possible time for that. And think about that. It's, it's July of 2019. That's just this more than a year that that's just crazy. And it's just how frustrating it is that the policy window is so incredibly you know, narrow because neither side is willing to give the other side a victory in election season, which is like years long now at this point. I know. And, it, and it's funny because the last time we did the show together, this is just right 
where we were, you know, this is right where our discussion yeah. was, was yeah. this idea of things not being, you know, this policy sunsetting too soon and there not being enough opportunity to really see some effective change. And, you know, it's so difficult in an election season. I mean, you know that I know that everyone listening knows that. And it's things are so partisan. It, in effect, a lot of things are going to be put on hold. And I hate to say that it's wrong, but they are. A lot of things are going to fade from the American consciousness unless unless you know, these, they, they make news, they make headlines and, you know, something like this, I think we need to kind of get past the noise and keep our eye on it, um, moving forward. But I, I definitely think that, um, I, I've heard a, uh, a possible kind of going along with something that you mentioned and I, and I'll, I'll riff on it a bit. Um, I heard somebody very intelligent that I know say that, um, he didn't see why we couldn't hold Skype hearings at, um, uh, embassies in other countries like the embassy and the U.S. embassy in Mexico. So that was something I know that that's been hmm. circling in political, I guess, in political circles. It's kind of been d- discussed um, because it's it's kind of a cheap alternative. I don't think it's easy because, it, like you said, it forces these people. Um, I mean, and, and I think sometimes, you know, they it's something that's that's doable. But I think a lot of these people live in these really reprehensible conditions and they're really struggling. And to keep them there is is rough. But well, yeah, well, it you is know, a Band-Aid. <laughs> well, I think part of it, too, is that uh, the, the majority of these asylum requests are going to be denied. And based on how our asylum law is written, I, I, I get that. I don't necessarily agree entirely with the sort of hardline interpretation. And so in this sense, I agree. This is so painful to say. I agree with <laughs> President Trump in that, you know, people from Central America are taking advantage of our asylum system. And now my fix for that is to make the immigration system a lot more welcoming and easier. That's not President Trump's fix for that, obviously. So that kind of leads to my, you know, again, frustration on, on this issue, essentially. Yeah. And, and I, I would agree with you for the most part. I, I, th- I th- actually think it's, that's not even a, a conservative or a liberal, liberal standpoint. I think just looking at the situation as objectively as we can, that seems to be the only logical conclusion. People will come across if you remove, you know, emotion from it, people will come across, um, you know, just like our ancestors did, you know, once before. And we have to have a place to to, you know, we, we have to make things as accommodating as possible, but we can't do that without a better system for yep. monitoring everything that's coming in and out. And so, Absolutely. you know, I, I, I really, again, I, we agree on this, I think on, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not a first, but no, no, it doesn't always happen. Okay. <laughs> um, should we move on? Yeah, let's. Okay. Um, okay. So the next issue um, is now. This is an interesting one because this isn't something that made a ton of headlines, but it's important and a little entertaining. Uh, uh, this is about the British ambassador that resigned after leaked communiques uh, criticizing Trump. So the facts with this story are very straightforward. Um, British ambassador to the U.S. Sir Kim Derrick is clearly not a fan of President Trump. Uh, he made some disparaging comments about Trump calling him insecure, incompetent. I think he called him inept too. Um, there were, and there were communications which were in the form of memos that were sent to London um, that were leaked, which is a whole other issue in itself. Um, and so, of course, predictably, Trump went on the attack 
and Derek resigned, um, citing that the entire diplomatic standoff between uh, the two and Trump's retaliation made it impossible for him to continue in his position. And so after trading barbs, uh, the British Commonwealth Foreign Office has said that they would investigate the origin of the leaks. So I guess a a question for you, Mike, Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk of this special relationship between Washington and London. Um, supposedly. So what do you think happened here? Do you think this is offering some insight into how these British government officials feel about American government officials or the Trump administration? Or do you think this was just uh, something political and or maybe personal? I think it's unique to Donald Trump uh, because of the President Trump's very, um, I'll be nice, unique foreign policy, certainly. <laughs> I mean, he's a big change both from traditional Democrats and Republicans. I mean, then all of what I read from the leaked communiques really seems pretty, you know, spot on. Dysfunctional administration, possible ties to the Russians, Trump being a threat to the world trade system, uh, clumsy, inept, insecure. Yeah, that that all seems right, right there. And and so I'm not shocked or surprised. I mean, I feel like if he hadn't written that stuff to his country, well, he wouldn't be doing his job. You're supposed to give your country the unvarnished, your unvarnished view of what you think about this world, you know, this other world leader. And so, you know, I I don't see anything wrong with that. Neither the British government. I think their statement was pretty clear that this is the kind of thing we expect, the honest view. So, but that said, of course he had to resign, you know, because you say these things in private communiques that aren't supposed to be leaked. And when they do, well, of course you can't really do your job. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. I think it's just a Trump thing. And once Trump is gone, uh, uh, a little blip on the historical landscape, hopefully, <laughs> please, God, um, I think the special relationship will be back to what it was pretty much and will be, you know, will be just fine. So uh, but there was one thing I really enjoyed about the one comment I'd like to think that the president probably would have at least appreciated if he heard. That's when uh, when the ambassador wrote. Do not write him off. He could emerge from the flames, battered but intact, like Schwarzenegger in the final scenes of The Terminator. And, <laughs> and I got this view of, of Donald Trump emerging from that like liquid, whatever, melting uh, vat with just his hair intact, because, of course, that would survive anything, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. But anyway, I think he'd like that. But uh, but no, this is what this is what diplomats are supposed to do. You know, I mean, so to me. It's not a it's not a big deal in that sense. It's unfortunate it linked and it doesn't tell us anything we don't already know about how pretty much all of Europe uh, and and the UK, even though Brexit is still, you know, provisionally mostly Europe uh, thinks about Donald Trump. And I'd say rightly so. Yeah, I I mean, um, you know, this is I'll preface what my thought is on this by saying that this is one of those situations where I think and I'm, you know, I've said this multiple times where I think Donald Trump goes way too far, especially when it comes to these taunting and the, these taunting comments and Twitter and, and things like that. I, you know, I think that, you know, ganging up on somebody like he did here um, and sort of going on the offense um, is probably not what we're used to and, you know, indelicate at best, um, you know, kind of going way too far at yeah. worst. I, yeah, I would say it's probably going way too far. That being said, I do think that um, there are undertones of something kind of po- deeply personal and political going on, which, again, I, I I don't think it's that this generally is unique to Donald Trump. I think that a lot of this began um, in the during the Obama administration where there was this um, 
divide going on. And I think that um, what we have here is something that's been ramped up in the Trump administration, which is um, people, especially um, in Britain, which used to be, you know, one of our strongest allies, if not our strongest ally, certainly in Europe. Um, you know, we, we have this um, these diametrically opposed worldviews. And, you know, he's made no secret about the fact that he does not like Theresa May um, and and a lot of the, the people she works with. And he's been relatively antagonistic towards her. Um, and he's being antagonistic towards, you know, this ambassador. And, you know, there are close ties between the two. So I do think that there is political motivation here. I'm sure that this ambassador went into this job knowing he didn't like Donald Trump. Um, I'm sure Donald Trump Trump didn't help things, um, but with this antagonistic relationship. (laughs) But, um, you know, I, I, I find it really hard to dismiss the fact that there is a concerted effort um, to, to, um, I guess, strengthen this political divide. And I think this plays nicely into it. And I mean, I hate to say I was entertained by this, but I was entertained because I think it's, you know, it's it's um, it, there's nothing light about it. It is it is serious. But I mean, it's just so predictable that this is what happened, that, Absolutely. you know, somebody came into this thinking Donald Trump was inept already and then said something about it, which he's entitled to do. I agree with you. And, you know, he he doesn't work for us. He works for the British government. He's entitled to say whatever he wants. And, you know, the fact that Donald Trump went on the offense and just completely trashed this guy. I mean, this is just how things are right now. And yep. this is where we are. So absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. And it, yeah, it was one of those stories that, that kind of came and went. But man, I wish we'd maybe paid more attention to it. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with so much serious news. Yeah, no kidding. And, and um, so the final, I guess, uh, one of the, well, we have a couple of stories, but the next one is um, the appeals court in D.C. and Maryland, um, which um, ordered the dismissal of the emoluments lawsuit against Donald Trump. So uh, this week in federal appeals court, Uh, Judges ordered the dismissal of a constitutional challenge to President Trump's continued ownership of his various businesses uh, for some just for a little bit of background. The case was originally brought by the attorneys general of Washington, D.C. and Maryland, um, and they argued that Trump had violated the domestic and foreign emoluments clauses of the U.S. Constitution. Um, And this was rooted, they said, in the fact that he had accepted money from state and foreign governments um, through his Washington hotel, which opened, I think, just months before he was inaugurated and his his various businesses. So this is a panel of three judges at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, and they ruled unanimously that the attorneys general did not have the standing to bring the lawsuit. So it was something a bit logistical. And if you're wondering why the dismissal was ordered, um, I have here a quote. Um, from Judge Paul uh, Niemeyer. Um, I hope I got that right. Uh, So what he basically said is the district and Maryland's interest in enforcing the emoluments clauses is so attenuated and abstract that their prosecution of this case readily provokes the question of whether this action against the president is an appropriate use of the courts, which were created to resolve real cases and controversies between the parties. Ouch. So, um, of course, the Trump administration hails this a victory. The attorneys general say that they're going to keep pursuing the issue. I don't know, Mike, what do you think? Legitimate corruption concerns or another political play? (laughs) I agree with everyone here. Uh, I I mean, I I agree with uh, with the Maryland and D.C. that there is certainly strong reason to believe that the president is in violation and has been in violation of of the Monuments Clause. But I also agree with the court that it doesn't seem to me that Maryland and D.C. have standing uh, to sue. Uh, But thankfully, Congress 
does have standing to sue. And that's because if you look at the emoluments clause, it says no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall without consent of Congress, except of any present emolument officer title of any kind, whatever from any king, prince or foreign state. And that without the consent of Congress, well, Congress is not given its consent in any way to any of this. And so despite what the Trump administration or the Trump organization, I'm sorry, I get too confused. I think Donald Trump does as well. Um, I think they've said, you know, well, we've donated the profits we've made from these various things or given them, you know, they haven't, they haven't taken them in basically. Uh, the Monuments Clause does not say, well, the president can donate the profits of anything. No, it says that Congress must consent. And so had Donald Trump done what every president before him done and not tried to run his business and be president of the United States at the same time. Now, granted, he handed off the day-to-day to someone, but he decided not to do that because probably he saw the presidency as a great business opportunity. Um, well, I, I mean, that, that's a problem. And I think that while it was correct that this case is not going forward, that Congress's case can and should and is going forward, and there's every reason to think that uh, that it, that some court will find the president in violation of the, at least the congressional consent part of this. And I don't know if the Supreme Court would do that, but I think that's uh, that's an important thing to find out. So. Uh, so, yeah, that's why I agree with everyone. Yeah, I actually it's funny. I wrote down at the bottom here a mix of the two question mark. And I think <laughs> when I was reading these articles, I think uh, my thought process had to do kind of with uh, the fact that this just seemed like a uh, like like almost like a political proxy, which is something we've seen. I mean, it's like popcorn these days. You know, you see these these battles being played out between the left and the right and in, in all forms and all forums. Sure. Um, and I think that I, I think it's impossible to overlook a couple of things that kind of go in the direction of both of both sides here. Um, all three of the judges, the the appeals court judges were nominated by Republican presidents. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's important to note. Um, I only I saw that noted in a couple of different articles. Do I think it's something very telling and revealing and, and you know, something, you know, proving that they're complicit? No, I don't. I, you know, I think for the most part, most judges do their job and they look at the facts. But I mean, I think it's worth noting. Um, I think it's always worth noting when something like that comes up. And on the other side, I do think that they were right, that they lack the standing. These attorneys general lack the standing to, to bring it up. And I do think that that little barb that was kind of hidden in Judge Niemeyer's opinion um, about this, he, you know, he sort of treaded, I guess, delicately in this whole political proxy idea, which is the fact that this seems to be um, not completely without merit, but it seems to have a lot of political motivation behind it. And I think that's worth noting um, that, you know, liberals really are trying to throw everything at the wall and to see what sticks, I think, for the most part. And um, I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see, like you said, the Supreme Court is, you know, we probably know how that would go. But until that point, you know, they'll keep trying this in different venues and they'll try different ways and methods. We've seen this before. And so this is kind of an ongoing thing. I, and I, you know, and, and certainly I, I support almost all of those efforts because Donald Trump is a slippery character and uh, I want to see him, I want to see Donald Trump get exactly what is coming to him. And I don't think that that's something Donald Trump really wants to see. Okay.
So we, we have time for one more story, don't we, more? Kristen? Well, yeah, let's do it. I think we do. I think we have time. And it, and this is a good one because this is uh, something we've seen a lot this week. Um, and this is um, about some of the tension and feuding on the left. And I was just dying to talk to you about it, Mike, because you're <laughs> I know you have some opinions about yeah. this. But um, I mean, this has been one of the biggest ongoing stories this week. Um, what in the world is going on with the Democratic Party? <laughs> uh, <laughs> there appears to be um, a lot of strife and division. I mean, that's putting it mildly as the more progressive members of Congress. And these are mostly the freshman representatives that we hear about every night in the news. Um, Yes, (laughs) the squad um, have gone on the attack and they're blasting Democratic leadership and most visibly Nancy Pelosi. um, And it's forcing many Democrats to choose sides. I mean, um, I have to say this this whole battle between um, Ocasio-Cortez and Pelosi and um, Ilhan Omar and on Twitter and playing out, um, you know, staffers accusing Pelosi of being a racist and veiled. I just I think the whole thing, it really reminds me a little bit of what was going on a decade ago with the Tea Party and the Republican Party. And it kind of harkens Mm -hmm. back to that. This just seems particularly nasty. I I don't know. What do you think, Mike? I'm dying to hear your opinion. Well, I'm with Speaker Pelosi on this one. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, as Speaker of the House, she has to worry primarily about keeping her party's majority. well, a couple of things she has to worry about. Keeping her party's majority is the, is the obvious thing, right? But she also needs to focus on helping to ensure that Donald Trump is a one-term president. And, and this is what I think is most important, is ultimately positioning her party to do some real good, to make things happen to, that matter in a positive way to, to the average Americans. Because that's what this is supposed to be all about beyond all the political posturing and all this other stuff, making people's lives better. And as far as I see it, for that to happen, that's going to require three things. Number one, holding the majority in the House. Number two, picking up a majority in the Senate. If not, you know, in 2020, maybe in 2022, fingers crossed. And number three, a Democratic president. Because without all of those three things happening, all Democrats can do is talk. Right. I mean, that that's it. You can't mm-hmm. pass any policy. And, and so I think Nancy Pelosi believes that the best way to make those three things happen is to not alienate the sort of moderate Democrats who she argues. And I think the data supports got the Democratic Party, the majority of the House in 2018. You look at those districts that they won. Yeah. They got the majority. Those were moderate districts. Now, I get that Ocasio-Cortez and other progressives disagree, right? But I don't see how their math works out on this. And, and that's not to say that principles aren't important. I think principles are absolutely important. But, but politics in the real world, as opposed to, you know, the Twitterverse, is all, we talked about this earlier, or we'll talk about this on for the Wednesday show, we talked about this, right? It's about finding compromises to your principles, compromises that, yeah, that you can live with, right? That that you can stomach because, you know, the other side has principles too. And so you can't go into this saying, well, we'll make a deal as long as the other side compromises all of their principles and we don't compromise any of ours or else we'll just take our ball and go home. That's the problem right now. And that's why we're not doing nearly enough to help out people that we could be doing. And so, I, so, so that's my, that's my first take on this. Okay. So mm-hmm. But that said, I disagree. I think Pelosi shouldn't have been so publicly dismissive of the squad. You know, I mean, I get that it probably comes from a place of frustration 
but it was a mistake on her part that like, well, what have they got? They got four votes. She just, she shouldn't have said that. That was a, that was a big mistake and it led to these reactions and so forth. And so, you know, bad on her for doing that. But I agree with her strategically because I agree with kind of her philosophy of what I think is her philosophy of how she can actually make things happen. They're going to matter to real Americans. So that, that's my take on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm really glad that you were able to weigh in on that because I've been um, struggling with this all week. And I think one of the things that um, that kind of compounded my frustration is the fact that, you know, I would I I'm notorious for flipping around from channel to channel. Like, you know, most Republicans watch one channel and most Democrats will watch, you know, one of a few channels that support their views. I flip around because I like to know what people think. And I read lots from lots of different sources. And across the board, I didn't see a lot of support for the squad, as you call them. I'm going to start calling them that because that's I want really to have t-shirts, you know? Yeah, should, they yeah. really should. They really should have t-shirts. But um, no, I, I, I didn't see a lot of support for them. And you even had people um, who are in Congress, you know, Democrats, people who hadn't been there a long time, people who had been there a long time, voicing this frustration. And I, and I get your frustration. I get their frustration. I get Nancy Pelosi's frustration. And I wasn't surprised, actually, that Donald Trump sort of came to her defense. And said, um, you know, it's it's not a matter of um, these these women sitting down. I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to paint this as an issue that's that that's sort of a non-issue. I think um, they're trying to turn this into a racial issue or they're yeah. trying to turn this into a generational issue. And I don't know that that that, that any of that's really true. Um, I think it's just an issue of policy and and uh, and goals. And I think that. You know, Nancy Pelosi, and I've said this before, as much as I disagree with her on just about everything, she's a very smart and savvy politician um, and she knows what she's doing. And I think that, I mean, if I remove myself from my Republican shoes and sort of look at this as objectively as I can, um, she understands much better than they do. Uh, what it, what it will require for them to succeed in in their strategy. Yeah. And that's going to be um, unity. And I think that these that the squad sort of coming in her face and, and, and they're being very bold. And again, like, you know, they're entitled to their opinions. But, you know, calling people like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, sort of these these veiled comments that they're racist and making this about, um, you know, call, you know, Ilan Omar calling her sis and things like that on, on Twitter. I just think it's it's stooping low. Yeah. And, well, um, it's, it's you tough. know, I actually think in a way. It's sort of a general, I don't think it's a racial thing. I mean, certainly a lot of the leadership in the, and members of the Congressional Black and Hispanic caucuses, you know, came out strong in support yeah. for Speaker Pelosi. But in a way, I think it's a general, generational issue in the sense that um, I think it's important to remember that Pelosi and a lot of the Democratic leadership came up in Congress in an era where there was this sort of norm of apprenticeship, where you got elected, and then at least for a few years, you sort of kept your head down, you learned the ropes, you paid your dues before you started making demands and getting this high public profile. And for better or for worse, that's changed, right? And so in that sense, I think, yeah, it is kind of a generational thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I also want to say, and I've come down sort of hard on the squad here, but also in a way, I think this is kind of a healthy tension. I mean, Change can be a good thing. And I think leadership can forget what's important and, and not focus enough and f- sometimes focus too much on pragmatism and not enough on principles and, and what they're, you know, really should be fighting for. But and so in in that sense, I want people like 
Ocasio-Cortez in Congress, just like I think it's really healthy that people like Rand Paul or Thomas Massey are there on the mm-hmm. Republican side. But but what I think how I think it's best for this to happen is internally behind closed doors without going initially immediately to the public option, which seems to be the default mm-hmm. here. And so I think when parties have these conversations within the party, that can be incredibly helpful, you know, helpful and healthy for the for the party. But when it kind of becomes this, well, we're going to talk about this through the media, that's when I think it can become kind of destructive. So I don't want anyone to think that I have problems with what Ocasio-Cortez is saying or anyone, you know, on the progressive left is saying about policy. I think there are a lot of good ideas, but I think you need to think about what's the best way to make some of this stuff happen. And sometimes, yeah, it is going public, but I think we too often people make that the first option. And I think that's a mistake for the party. Yeah. And I, and I do think that that is a generational thing. I mean, as somebody who comes from the same generation and, you know, I guess broadly speaking, um, that is kind of where we jump. I think there's more of, uh, they see an opportunity for self-promotion, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing when you're a politician. I mean, you should be promoting yourself. Um, but I feel like they're, they're missing out on this opportunity to, to have this like policy discussion, like you said, and it, and it really does remind me in a lot of ways of what was going on, um, you know, right around 2009, 2010 with the Tea Party and the Republican Party. I mean, I sympathized a lot with, you know, a lot of the things that the Tea Party was saying. And I also sympathized a lot with, uh, you know, some of them with what some of the more establishment members of, you know, the Republican caucus and things were, were saying, too. And I think they both had valid points. Um, but the, the difference is they stopped short of these really pointed barbs towards the establishment Republicans. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, Ocasio-Cortez's staffers referring to Pelosi and company as racists. And, um, you know, I, I just I, that makes me cringe because I think it's destructive to the Democratic and, Party. And, and I get that. When I was in my early, mid, late 20s, I was pretty fired up and would say things and so oh, forth. Sure. But of course, I wasn't a staffer for a member of Congress, you know, and I think that's probably an important <laughs> distinction there. And so I think it's I think it's great to see that energy. On, on both sides. But again, I think this also is kind of going to sound like some kind of crusty old guy here. But, you know, I think it's also part of a change in society. I mean, me- you know, politicians have never been huge on humility. But I think just in general, this notion that humility and kind of holding back a little bit is a good thing. That's so that, that's gone away to an incredible mm-hmm. extent in the last you know, generation or so for a lot of reasons. And in some cases, that's good. But I think we lose something important there as well with, we, we, you know, we don't have as much of that. And so I think that's in part, this is just indicative of broader societal changes, really. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. Yeah. Well, I am glad that we were able to to talk about <laughs> that because it would have been I, you know, when you first when you first mentioned that, I thought, do I really have a lot to say about it? And I started thinking, about it, like, wow, I really do have a lot to yeah, say. About yeah, I mean, that, it was so. just one of those things that I kept thinking about this week every time I turned on the news or something. And I'm like, oh, I got to write that down to ask Mike. Yeah. I'm so glad that I'm we glad were able to get to it. It was important. Yeah. And of course, even though we are done with today's show, as soon as we're done recording, we're going to be doing our uh, supporters bonus show. And I think this week we're talking about, was it... um. Donald Trump uh, not being able to block people on Twitter, right? Yeah, uh, there's a ruling that. there. And that also, a, a little more substantively, there was an interesting executive order that the Trump, uh, or the Trump organization, the Trump administration 
just uh, just issued about kidney dialysis and transplantation, which I actually think is a pretty good thing, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about that. So um, if you're a supporter, you'll get to hear that conversation between Kristen and myself, and uh, of course, that's just one of the supporters-only things we've got lined up for you to find out about all of them. Just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or just go to our website, politicsguys.com, and click on support. If you want to get in touch with us, at mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are on Twitter, at politicsguys. And hey, if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, it would really help us out. We would appreciate it. Also, leaving reviews, ratings, sharing you know, the episode, and whatever, where, wherever you listen to podcast app, that would be great. Thanks so much. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Benji Fishman, and Andra Masker. Today's show is produced by Krista Matheny and Michael Baranowski. That's me. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.